0: I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And as you do that, we're just going to take a moment and be still before the Lord and just invite Him to speak. So we're just going to have 30, 45 seconds of silence. Just invite Him to prepare our hearts. Lord, we invite you to speak now. And we thank you that your word goes forth and it never, ever, ever returns void. And that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And uh, Lord, we, we hold on to those promises. Every week we hold on to those promises. I confess today, Lord, that I feel very much like the boy with the loaves and the fish, uh, offering it up to you. And uh, it, it doesn't feel like much. It doesn't feel like what you deserve. And yet, nevertheless, you take what we have and you multiply it and you feed your people. Because uh, these are your people. And Lord, 10 years in, I'm, just, I'm reminded these are your people. This is, this is your church. And it's just one expression among many of your church here in Aurelia, one expression among hundreds of thousands of your church here in North America, one expression perhaps even of millions of your church across the world, but it's yours, uh, just like every other one of them. So would you lead and would you direct and would you do what only you can do by the power of your spirit through the preaching of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're here in Acts chapter 2. And at this point, if you're looking in your Bible, we're in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. So we've now come to the end of Luke's account of Pentecost. And Pentecost is a very, very big deal. I hope that if you've been tracking with us, you understand what a huge deal Pentecost was. In that encounter with the Holy Spirit filling the church and with Peter proclaiming the good news of the gospel, 3,000 people were added to the church. But what was most significant about Pentecost was the fact that God filled every one of his people with his spirit. And empowered us for mission. We've referred to Pentecost as the birthday party of the church. And here in verse 42, if you kind of want to picture visually, the birthday party is now in the rearview mirror. Okay, so we have finished talking about the birthday party. Now we're turning our attention in the rest of this book to the assignment that this church has been called to. If you look back to chapter 1 verse 8... You could even make a little note. You don't need to do this if you're not a note person, but you could write even like table of contents next to verse 8 because that's kind of what this is. It's a table of contents for what we see in Acts. Jesus tells his church, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's what we've been considering in chapter 1 and 2 in the Pentecost. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he says, I'm going to fill you with power, and I'm going to send you on mission, starting here and branching out to the nations. And in verse 42, what we find is the beginning of the church's mission in Jerusalem, stage one of the assignment. And in fact, this paragraph we're looking at is like a summary paragraph of of what the church was doing and ministering in Jerusalem. And what we find in this paragraph, and what I want to draw our attention to this morning, is the fact that one of the ways, humanly speaking, how this church changed Jerusalem, how they impacted their city, was through the health of their congregation. It's through the fact that this was a healthy, just in being a healthy church, God drew many people to himself. There's something about a a good example. And, you know, I've I've been thinking about it this week because I'm, one of my joys as a pastor is I get to do pre-marriage counseling. I get to prepare young couples as they're getting ready to get married. And I don't know if you've ever had the joy of, of talking to young couples as they're about to get married, but uh, they kind of look like Kezia all the time. I don't know if you noticed, Kezia didn't stop smiling once. And it's like that with these young couples. You know, they're just, they're giggling. And I'm sitting in the office and they're across from me and, and they just can't stop smiling and looking at each other. And I ask, have you ever had a, a significant argument? And they, they're like, only about who's going to hang up first. And then they tickle each other. And you think like... It's, uh, it's beautiful, it's horrifying, it's all the above, it's young love. And, and so it's, I feel like it's part of my responsibility to help them to take off those glasses and let's be real here, marriage is it's hard and it's a long walk and some of the giggles eventually fade, you're going to have some hard seasons. And, and one of the things that I tell every young couple as I prepare them is I tell them that you need to find a healthy Christian couple and you need to spend as much time with them as you can. You need to watch that example. You need to ask lots of questions. You need to soak it in. I tell them that because I recognize that almost all of the young people who are going to sit across from me and look at me have grown up in a home that wasn't particularly healthy, have watched examples that, that were dysfunctional, and they've been living in that for 25 years. And, and as they go into this marriage, even though they're giggling now, when push comes to shove and they come to that place, the things that they've learned, even subconsciously, are going to come out. And so I always challenge them. I say, find something healthy and lock onto it and, and just be with them and ask questions and ask them why they do what they do and watch the way he talks to her and watch the way she talks to him. and Soak it in, right? Healthy examples are, are, we need those. And you say, what on earth does this have to do with our passage? Well, I feel like this morning on our 10-year anniversary, we're kind of like those giggling kids in the room. You know, it's, we're 10 years in and we're, we're full of ambition and optimism, and we're kind of looking at each other, and it's just going to be great, right? We're, going to, we're ready to change the world, change the city. We, uh, we're ready to be a healthy church, which is good. But right now I want to ask the question, do we know what that looks like? What does it look like to be a healthy church? One thing I've, I've learned over the last 10 years is that in a room of 100 people, there are a hundred different ideas of what a healthy church should look like. So the person beside you and the person behind you and in front of you, they've got an idea of where we're going, uh, but that idea of where we're going is actually kind of different from your idea and from his idea and from her idea, and yet here we are all, and it's shaped by our experiences, right? It's from, I'm, the person beside you is like, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to recreate this church to look just like the church of my childhood. And the person beside you is like, no, it's going to look like the church I just came from. And we're all running these directions. And of course, that's natural. We're shaped by the experiences that we have, right? We're influenced by those things. That's, you can't avoid it. And in large part, it's good. You've, all of us here have learned healthy things from our past. We've seen good examples in the churches that we were in previously. But the frightening thing is that all of us here have soaked up unhealth from our past. And we've learned dysfunction from the experiences behind us. And we bring that with us too. The whole mixed bag. A hundred different versions of, of that baggage here in this place. It's kind of a miracle that any church lives past 10 years. What do we do? If everybody's going in a different direction, sometimes I'll have a meeting in the morning where someone says, we should be going here. And I have a meeting in the afternoon where they say, no, we should be going here. And they're both tears in the eyes, God's word open, convicted. What do we do? Well, I would propose that for the next 35 minutes at least, we all resolve to take those experiences of the past, and my favorite church of the past, and let's set that aside for a moment, and let's share this experience of looking at this picture of a healthy church in Jerusalem. This is the first New Testament church. They're not perfect. We're going to learn about their flaws and shortcomings in the weeks ahead. But they're healthy, and they're vibrant, and they're on fire for the Lord. And so what we have in verses 42 to 47 here, it's not a prescription, you know, so this isn't like the doctor writing out, do these seven things, go. That's not what this is. It's not a prescription. It's, it's like a, a snapshot, a snapshot of a moment. And we're looking at a healthy church and watching the way that they conducted themselves. So that's what we're looking at today. And I want to invite you to look with me at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Lord, for a portrait of a healthy church. What a benefit that each and every... Now, maybe some of you here today grew up in absolute dysfunction. And I know that's true for at least some of you. And when you look back on the church of your past, all you can remember are scars and pain and hurt, and, and, and you don't want to repeat any of that. I praise the Lord that we can look beyond that example to this example that we all share. So let's look closely. Here we catch a glimpse of a healthy, flourishing church. What do we see as we consider their example? What are these marks that we find in this healthy church? I want to pull out eight marks today. And the first thing that we find as we look at this snapshot is that a healthy church is devoted to the teaching of the word. So in verse 42, Luke says they devoted themselves. This word has the idea of of like binding themselves, attaching themselves, resolving to stay close to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So he takes these four things and he, he elevates them. He says, if you want a snapshot of who this church was, this is it. So if there was a church planner who were to come to me today and say, give me one verse to prepare me as I go to plant the church, I'd, I'd point him here. Devote yourself to these things. And the first thing on the list is the teaching of the apostles, which meant that whenever the church gathered, the, the word of God was central. And you'll never find a healthy church that is not committed to a faithful, spirit-filled, Christ-exalting ministry of the word. You won't. Because healthy churches understand that God gives life through His Word. He gives direction. He gives instruction. His Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The dry bones in Ezekiel's vision, they didn't come to life until Ezekiel spoke the Word of God and suddenly the dry bones came to life and they rattled and they were clothed with flesh and tendons. Healthy churches know that opinions and anecdotes and strategies have no power to transform a life. But the Word of God never, ever returns void. The reformer Martin Luther, I love quoting Martin Luther because he's straight to the point. And he says things in a a way that kind of jars you a little bit. And he does that here. He's reflecting on how God used him to bring about this movement that really changed the world, the Reformation. He famously said, see how much he has been able to accomplish through me. Though I did no more than pray and preach. The word did it all. Had I wished, I might have started a conflagration. That just means a really big fire. I might have started a conflagration at worms. Not the little worms, like a city. But while I sat still and drank beer with Philip and Amsdorf, God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. That last part is not prescriptive, by the way. But Martin Luther, he's he's reflecting back on it all, and he says, the word of God is powerful. Like, look at what he's done. He's done. I, I could have, listened like Martin Luther, he saw that there were some things that were wrong, that the church had lost all direction, that God's word said this, and the church was doing this, and so he's concerned about this unhealth, and he says, I could have just started a fire in the city. But instead, he says, I opened my Bible, and I, I preached the word, just faithfully, regularly. I, I, I got the word out to the people, and do you know what happened? He says, it was like I opened the cage, and the lion went out changed everything and I sat down with Philip and I had a drink and the world changed because the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword sometimes I, sometimes I suspect that myself and for us as Christians we lose sight of how powerful the word of God is when we are doing evangelism, when we're reaching out to our neighbors, let's, let's resolve to just sow the word of God into our conversations, Right, memorize scripture and get it out because it never returns void you could talk to your neighbor for 20 minutes about your thoughts and, and the Lord might see fit to use some of that. But if you, if you give them just one verse of the word of God, just watch. It's like a lion let loose. It's like a seed planted deep in their heart. And Martin Luther says, I saw it. <laughs> I witnessed it. It's unbelievable. Now in the coming chapters, we're going to read about how this fledgling church grew to... Reached Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and then at the end of it we see the Apostle Paul in Rome and the nations are being reached through this church. But here in the very beginning we were reminded that they didn't do it with politics and they didn't do it with weapons and they didn't do it with the latest church growth strategies or tactics. Didn't use any of that. They devoted themselves to the word of God. And you will never find a healthy church that is not devoted to that same conviction. That's the first thing we find here, the first mark of a healthy church. The second is that a healthy church is devoted to the fellowship. And I want to point out there's a difference between the fellowship and fellowship in general. In your English Bible, it says the fellowship. In the Greek, it's got the article there, the, which means he's not just talking about having coffee with your friend at the coffee shop. That's fellowship, and that's important. We need that. But he's not just referring to that. That's tied into it. But what he's referring to, the fellowship, the coming together, the large gathering of the people of God. And the early church devoted themselves to this. We find them there in this, in this paragraph. We find them coming together at the temple. In the early days, they were still allowed to gather at the temple. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But remember, these, these are Jews, and they hear the proclamation of Jesus. And, but what does the proclamation say? It says that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. And so they understood themselves not as having departed from Judaism, but from living in the fulfillment of Judaism. And so, of course, we find them worshiping at the temple because they're Jews. And so they're there, and they're worshiping God, and now their worship's different because they see Jesus. And that changes everything. But they're still there. And there's an early season where they're allowed to be there until kind of the people in the temple come to realize that this is not just like a a different piece of us. This is like a whole new thing and they're cast out. But they would gather in particular at a place called Solomon's Portico, which is on the eastern side of the outer courts in the temple. We're going to see them there next week when we turn to chapter 3. And they came together day after day. And they sat under the teaching of the apostles and they prayed together. And this was their habit. They made a priority of assembling. They devoted themselves, as Luke says, to the fellowship. The early church understood that there was something special that happened when the people of God came all together. We see this captured in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, where the apostle instructs us, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, these people in Acts had been transformed by the gospel, and one of the evidences of that transformation was that they wanted to be together. Again, Kezia is just like this beautiful illustration today. I'm going to refer to her a few times. You, You look at that smile, you see her just bubbling and eager. Was somebody twisting her arm to get her here today? Not a chance. Like, she has seen Jesus, and there's nowhere else she'd rather be. She is excited. She's here. She's going to learn more about him. She's going to worship with her friends. She won't stop smiling. She's probably feeling a little nervous right now. doesn't matter. I'm too excited, right? She wants to be here. And that's what we see in this church. Nobody's twisting their arm. They want to be together. They're taking every opportunity that they have to get together, to assemble with the people of God. And that is a mark of a healthy church. And if there's one area in this sermon where I want to just point in a little bit of press for us as a people I am going to suggest to you from my vantage point that for my generation this is an area where we are markedly unhealthy we don't prioritize assembling together we don't devote ourselves to the fellowship and we model that for our kids for the next generation the, the assembling of the people of God is, is pretty low on our priority list now, sickness happens, and going away for vacation, is going to happen. You've got four, four vacations, and you travel with your family, and you're worshiping in a different place with a different congregation. Of course, of course. But I wonder if we are prioritizing the gathering. Because sometimes it, it feels as if 20% of the folks who, who should be here, who could be here, aren't here. They're off doing other things and when the body is regularly operating with 20% of its organs missing i'm not a doctor but that's not a sign of health and we'll limp as a church until that changes in us see i've I've often said this from the pulpit and I'll say it again that one of the one of the most impactful moments in a service not the only one but one of them is when the whole structured service comes to an end And the fellowship begins and people start to talk. And in that moment, oh, you are so critical to the body of Christ. You know, in that moment, there's that that woman sitting next to you who's quietly wiping the tears from her eyes and is is slow to move from her seat. In that moment, there's that man who's visiting for the first time. and, And he's just a bit to rush back out into the world. And, it, and you've got an opportunity to see if, if he's retaining any of this, if, if any of this is stirring in him before he rushes into a, a world where he's surrounded by unbelief. That teenager who's, who's wrestling with these questions and his friends are all being goofy, but he, there's some wrestling he's got going on. You have an opportunity to, to speak to them, to disciple any of these people. Your brother in Christ who's, who's feeling like this conviction of the Spirit, because the Lord has just revealed an area where he's weak. All of that discipleship, it's happening every single week, and I love seeing it happen, and I love hearing testimonies of how it's happened. It's true. It happens every week. And, you know, we're all called to be disciple-makers. We know this. But oftentimes we're like, well, where do I make disciples? Do I I knock on my neighbor's door and say, hey, would you like to be discipled? That feels a little bit intimidating. That is intimidating. You should try it, but... But I would suggest, boy, if you're looking to become a disciple maker and you're looking for opportunities, here's the strategy. Sit somewhere different next Sunday than where you're sitting today. And after the service, devote yourselves for the first ten minutes when the service is done, when the structure is done. Just look around and look for the people whose hearts are stirred. Look for the places where the soil has been, has been shuffled around and then get in there and put in seeds and pray and speak. and Disciple. That is is the mark of a healthy church. We should be looking for those opportunities. Now, next, third. A healthy church is devoted to the breaking of bread. And there is some discussion surrounding what Luke means here. So there's really two options. Uh, Some suggest that he's just referring to sharing a meal in the home. It's very possible that that's what he means. He uses the same expression, the breaking of bread, later on in this book. And he's talking about folks sharing a meal. So it could be that. However, I'm inclined to agree with one commentator who says, yet it's difficult to believe that Luke had in mind here only an ordinary meal, placing the expression, as he does, between two such religiously loaded terms as the fellowship and prayer. It sure sounds like in this lump of four things, he's talking about the the gathering of the people of God, which is why I would suggest, and, and many are with me on this, that Luke is here referring to the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered together with his disciples, and they they shared a meal together. And Luke describes that meal this way in Luke's gospel. It says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that meal is is what we refer to here as the Lord's Supper, uh, or as communion, or as the Eucharist. If you've heard us use any of those terms, that's what we're referring to. We come to this once a month, and it's the first Sunday of the month that we celebrate this. It was a practice that was ordained by Jesus himself, which is why we, we, the fancy word that we use for it is it's an ordinance, meaning it was ordained by Jesus, just like baptism. These are two things that Jesus specifically commanded us to do as his people. And I'm going to argue that this is what Luke had in mind when he wrote that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Because a healthy church is a church that remembers. See, so much of the Christian life centers around our ability to, to remember, to return to the gospel. And in the Lord's Supper, our memory is powerfully stimulated. Matthew Henry has this great quote. He says, The Lord's Supper is a sermon to the eye. It's, it's an opportunity for us to tangibly see. And so we, we come together and, and what do we do? We break the bread. And Jesus, as he broke the bread, said, this is my, this is my body. Right, So the only sinless person who's ever lived, the only perfect man who's ever lived, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, this is my body. And it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. And he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. So he's saying, oh, that, we've, we've got these old covenants and they were preparing us, but there was a promise that there's a new covenant coming and the new covenant, it's being ushered in right here through my blood. So you're going to do this in remembrance of me, take and drink. And there we remember that Jesus, the, the perfect sinless man, his blood was shed so that sinners like you and I could be forgiven. So that we could be cleansed forever from our sin. And so he said, as often you come together, you do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, you proclaim, you declare, you demonstrate the Lord's death until he comes. This is what he calls us to this. And I think what Luke is saying here is that this church, they understood, boy, we need to lock into the gospel. We need to root ourselves here, lest we forget, lest we lose sight. We're going to return to the table again and again and again. We need to see that we're cleansed, we're forgiven, we're loved. Our sin is paid in full. That's the gospel. And if we lose sight of the gospel, then we've lost it all. You see, Jesus loves his church. And as I was praying earlier, this is his church. The Redeemer is his church. The cornerstone is his church. His church is gathering all around the world. He loves his church. And he has this ordinance, this order from Jesus is that we would return to the table again and again. Why? Because Jesus, who loves us and who knows us, recognizes that we are prone to forget. So the early church took this very seriously. And they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And you'll never find a healthy church that doesn't do likewise. Now, what does is, what is regularly look like? Well, some return weekly. Some, like us, return once a month. But every healthy church returns regularly to remember. Next, we learn in this snapshot that a healthy church is devoted to prayer. They're devoted to prayer. So, again, if you have your Bible, I want you to flip back to chapter 1. I want you to notice the way that Luke highlights how prayer is, is central, integral to this church. So, in chapter 1, in verse 14... This is when they're looking to, to select an apostle. Oh no, this is, this, is after, uh, this is before the ascension. After the ascension. When is this? After the ascension. Stay behind your notes. Verse 14, he says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Then, if you flip ahead to verse 24 of chapter 1, this is when they're trying to set apart an apostle to replace Judas. And it says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. We're going to find them in prayer again and again in the book of Acts. In times of crisis, they're in prayer. In times of fruitfulness, we'll find them again in prayer. Prayer as they worship, prayer as they're sending missionaries, prayer as they're seeking direction. This church is is marked by prayer, devoted to it. Luke wants us to see that. J.I. Packer has this great quote. He says, men who know their God before anything else are men who pray. And the first point where their zeal and energy for God's glory come to expression is in their prayers. If there's little energy for such prayer and little consequent practice of it, this is a sure sign that as yet we scarcely know our God. So he's just saying the flip side of what we've been saying. We're saying that the mark of a healthy church is that there are people devoted to prayer. He's saying here, J.I. Packer's saying that on the flip side, if you find a church that's not devoted to prayer, that doesn't see priority in prayer, that, that doesn't really put a high on the priority list, it's a sure sign that as yet they scarcely know their God. And this church that we find in Acts, they knew where their power came from. And I also want you to note here that this is, this is corporate prayer that Luke's highlighting. So the prayer that he mentions here is is happening in the context of the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread. So here he's talking about the assembly, what the church does together. See, there's something special, something powerful about praying in community. And I'm going to hazard a guess that for some of you, you've actually never experienced that. You've never prayed in a prayer group. You've never prayed in a large gathering. Um, you, you see prayer as something that is, is only private, and private prayer is a thing, but there's something beautiful about praying together with the people of God. And I, I'm, if, if you haven't experienced that, I'm praying for you that this would be the year that that changes for you. Our theme, verse, our theme verse for this year is from Luke 11, 1, where we read, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. That, that request right there, Lord, teach us to pray. That's our theme verse for this year. Because if we're going to be a healthy church, if the Lord's going to use us to reach this city, we must devote ourselves to prayer. We cannot do this in our strength. Can't do it. Can't do it in our programming. Can't do it in your... Like, I mean, we could all motivate ourselves right now and get really pumped up about evangelism. We could go, we could knock on doors, we could talk to our neighbors, our coworkers. We could give it our very, very best efforts. But without prayer... Without the Spirit of God empowering us, preparing hearts before us, softening them, opening ears, nothing will happen. Nothing will happen. So we need to grow in this. We need to continue to devote ourselves to prayer. Because there's never been a healthy, vibrant, flourishing church that wasn't first a faithful, humble, committed to prayer church. So let that be us. Now I'm going to move quickly with these last observations. The first four Uh, These were flowing out of, as I mentioned, a really significant summary. That was the the blueprint for planting a new church verse. So he highlights this. But then he goes on to just describe the things that were happening in their midst. And in that description, I want to pull out just four insights for us as we move forward. I think we can take from the snapshot that a healthy church is filled with grateful people. Filled with grateful people. Look at verse 46 again. Day by day, attending the temple together... Breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with what? Glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Day by day, they were glad. Day by day, they were a people of praise. So, again, let's go back to Little Kezia. I wish that that's what we ought to look like. There's something compelling about that, isn't there? Just so overwhelmed. You know, it's easy to grumble. This is a secret. Uh, I want to share this with you. It's easy to grumble. It really is. It, and I would say an unhealthy church, a sign of an unhealthy church, is that they are known for their grumbling. They're known for their irritation. They're known for the way that they quarrel over every last little minute thing and the wrestling and dividing. That's a sure sign of, of rot and unhealth. But a healthy church, oh, it's marked by gratitude and joy. It's easy to grumble. The the devil, he incites us to grumble, right? I've got this quote here. Let me share this with you. This is a quote from Sinclair Ferguson. So he's talking about the grumble. He says, he knows that he cannot destroy the salvation of God's people. He can't do it. But he is bent, indeed hell-bent, as he was in Eden, on destroying our peace, liberty, and joy in God. That's the game plan. So the devil, he's, he's looking... He knows he can't just, like, rob you of your salvation. Oh, But what I can do is I can make you miserable. And I I can convince you to find something to complain about every day. I'll convince you to find something to complain about when you roll out of bed, in your marriage, in your family life. I'll I'll convince you to find something to complain about every time you come together. Oh, the lights are too bright or too dark. The songs, they didn't sing my favorite song. Or the the pastor's preaching too short. That's never it. Right? (laughs) Right? But it's easy. It's not like this is hard. And, and the devil's like, and, I, and I'll, I'll convince you that this is discernment. So you'll, you'll foster these complaints and this grumbling spirit, and you'll feel great about it. It's not a mark of health to be grumbling all the time. It's not. You know what a mark of health is? That smile that we saw beaming from the front. That's, that's health right there, isn't it? You know why? Because she sees Jesus A healthy church is a happy church. Because, yes, you know, all the things we're grumbling about, they're real things. The person next to me, they did bother me. I am a bit annoyed by what they've done. And I didn't particularly love that last song. I loved all the songs, sweetie. But, like, they're real things. I get it. This isn't like what I grew up with. Very true. But then I stop and I look around. And there's a hundred people here who have been transformed by Jesus Christ. Brought from death to life. A hundred people that could be anywhere else and yet they're here worshiping Jesus and I get to worship with them. All right? And the word of God. like the God could be, he could be silent. He could have just left me to try and figure it out. Instead, he speaks. I get to hear from him today. I get to hear his word. I get to pray these prayers. And I, it's not meditation. It's not the things that my friends are doing at, with the yoga studio where I'm trying to center myself and express my thoughts to myself. No, I'm lifting them up to God, the maker of heaven and earth who is my Father who loves me and who has the power to change the world. I get to bring that to Him. He invites me to come. It's amazing. I'm surrounded by a million miracles every day. And so, yes, I could nitpick and I could find things that bother me. Sure, the devil would love for me to do that. But a healthy church doesn't do that because a healthy church is so saturated with and infatuated with and overflowing with the gratitude that comes with the glory of the gospel. And that's a mark of health. And so let people see that in us. And I hope they do. I hope they're seeing that in me. I hope they're seeing that in you. I hope they're seeing that in our little ones, in our marriages as we go and we scatter, as we work in the workplace. These people were marked with gratitude and praise. It was just overflowing out of them. Now, next. The healthy church is abounding in generosity, all who believed together were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, I don't want to misinterpret these verses because I, I know there's a lot of folks who look at this and they say, oh, well, perfect. The gospel creates communism. This is the best. You know, and a lot of young guys especially. That's not what we see here. It's, they're not selling every single possession and coming into a communal... That's Later on in Acts, we're going to find that these believers, some of them had houses. Some of them had, in fact, big houses where they would gather together and worship. So it's not that. But then what is it? It's just a, it's a self-sacrificing generosity that bubbled up in them when they saw Jesus. When they understood the gospel, suddenly all of the stuff that they used to be so inclined to hold on to tightly, it, it became, well, they saw it for what it is. It's, it's temporary. Can't take it with you. And then they saw that the people around them are actually, they're eternal. <laughs> I'm, look around you right now. Look at the people around you. These are eternal souls all around you. And the stuff, the home that we're going to go to and the cars we're going to drive out in, they're temporary, right? And when they saw that, all the priorities shifted. And they became a people that were marked by this abounding generosity, And it's an evidence of the kingdom of God at work. You know, I I should have pulled out some quotes, but as I read through Luke, and I just sat down and read through the gospel of Luke, one of the things that struck me was how often the kingdom of God advancing was evidenced by generosity. And how often when Jesus would confront people with the kingdom of God, it would often confront them at the place of their wallet. And many would walk away sad. Because that generosity, that wasn't something, they weren't ready for that self-sacrificing generosity. But it's a mark that the kingdom is moving when people's hands stop clenching so tightly to their things. And people start looking with tenderness and affection at the people around them. One commentator notes, theirs wasn't a utopian vision, but the expression in real life of the love and care that believers in Jesus extended in practical terms for one another. And if I could just say something candidly to you, over 10 years, I have been so overwhelmingly blessed seeing you live this out. So if, if on the fellowship, I kind of leaned in and I said, I think this is an area where we need to grow. On the contrary, I'd like to f- lean in here and say, praise God for what he's doing in you, church. I have just, uh, it has been an absolute privilege as your pastor to see, and I, we don't celebrate these things all the time. It'd be inappropriate. We can't just stand up and wave a flag. But I get to hear these stories as the pastor of of the person who couldn't pay their rent and and then another Christian jumped in and and just saved the day. Or or the person who who couldn't shovel their driveway, but then somebody came in and and they shoveled the driveway. They rolled up the handyman who came in and fixed the appliance for the widow who couldn't sort it out. The 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 people who, though they weren't particularly wealthy, gave from what they have to cover the needs of, of somebody else else. Those of you who are gifted relationally, who perhaps you don't have an awful lot of time, but still you gave of your time to come alongside someone who needed support. All of those are marks of of this self-sacrificing generosity. And I see it all over all of you. And uh, praise God. It's from him. But if I could just commend you, just keep leaning into this. It's a mark of health. It's beautiful. And let it be true of us as we move forward in the years to come. Next, flowing out of all that we've seen, A healthy church is compelling. It's compelling. Now, again, I want to remind you, as I said, this isn't a prescriptive text, meaning this isn't, it's not as if he's saying, do this, 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 and this, this, and this will happen. That's not what he's saying. He's just, it's a portrait. But as we look at this portrait, what we see is that this early church was praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Now, of course, we have to balance that with the fact that Jesus said that, you know, you'll be hated in the world. Uh, you'll be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Rejoice and be glad. So Jesus said that there's going to be persecution, and as the gospel goes forward, we're going to face opposition. We're going to see that next week, disclaimer. But what we see right here is this principle that, that when the church is healthy, when the ch- church is looking like what we're supposed to look like, it's compelling. And the people in Jerusalem, they, they saw this health, they saw this vibrant church, and they wanted to be a part of it. Right? They looked at it with favor. They looked at the way that they were caring for the poor in their midst, and they thought, that is special. They looked at the way that they had community, and they thought, that is special. Can I tell you something? In a world where people are, are grumbling all the day long, a joyful people who are marked with gratitude and generosity is a compelling witness be that person in your workplace and just watch what happens it's compelling in a world where everybody's so isolated right everybody's so removed from real relationship if if we cultivate authentic relationship in this place real fellowship if we devote ourselves to it it's compelling when people come in and they see it and they see our love for one another and our knowledge of one another it's compelling in a world where nobody really knows what to think. And, and it's like shifting sand. Every time you think you plant your feet somewhere, it gets, you're unsettled. It, a lot of people are unsettled all around us. Here we are, we get to stand on the rock that is Christ. And His truth endures forever. It was true then, it's true today, it'll be true a hundred years. That's compelling. As we bring our concerns to a God who cares, and we pray in faith, and He answers prayer, and He does wonders in our midst, It's compelling. A healthy church is a powerful witness. And so, of course, we put thought into how we can strategically reach our neighbors and our community and we run pro. Everything that we do is, in a sense, kind of an overflow of, of thoughtfulness and strategy. Like Thursday night, that program, we run that because we think it's helpful and we've thought about all the things we could do and we're doing that. So, of course, there's, we're going to discern and we're going to look. But here's the beauty of it and something that I, I rest in when I start to feel anxious. The recipe is... A healthy church, a church that beholds Christ and is transformed by him. That's it's going to be compelling. That's going to make waves in the city. And that's what we see here in this text. And that leads us to the, the final thing that I want to leave us with today. A healthy church is empowered and emboldened by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and I'm pulling this out not from our text this morning, but from our text from last week. Because everything that I've said thus far, if we separate it, divorce it from what we saw last week, uh, instead of being an encouragement, it becomes like a ball in a chain. Here's what I don't want today I don't want us to go home and to kind of wallow and say, oh, I'm not devoted to the fellowship like I should be. Well, you know, my attendance is abysmal. I need to do better. Do better. Do better. I can do better. Do better. The prayer meeting, I, I just have to. I gotta fit this into my schedule. I just gotta do better. You know, Pastor sounded disappointed in me. I think he's I think he is. I I can I can do this if I just work harder. If I roll up my sleeves, we can be a better church. We can be healthy. That is not healthy. (laughs) That's not what we're after. And that's not who these people were. That's not who little Kezia is, right? What's healthy about it? These are the people who are coming out of Pentecost. Remember? These are the people we heard about last week. They rush out into the street. And they see these signs and wonders. They don't know what's going on. And they hear Peter. And Peter boldly proclaims the gospel. And he tells them about Jesus, the man who conquered death, the king who we've been waiting for. And he says, This Jesus, he is the king, he is the Lord. He took all of our sin. And, he, and Peter looked out at the crowd. He said, We are sinners, but this Jesus has taken our sins upon himself. And he's removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. But we rejected his authority and we rejected this Jesus and we've been living these selfish lives for ourselves and we have sinned. And if you remember this group of people hearing the gospel, they were cut to the heart because they knew it was true that they did reject Jesus. That they have been living a selfish life. They've been living for themselves. That they, they build all of their priorities around, around the idol of me, right? Cut to the heart. And they said to Peter, what must we do? Remember what he said? He said, Repent, be baptized, be filled with the Spirit. He said to them, Just turn from your sin, place your trust in Jesus, watch what he'll do. And that day, 3,000 people were added to the number. 3,000 people turned away from who they were. 3,000 people put their trust in Jesus. They demonstrated it by going through the waters of baptism. They were filled with the powerful Holy Spirit, and that change them. So then what do we find here in verses 42 to 47? We find the overflow of that. What we don't find in 42 and 47 is a bunch of nice people who are like, hey, I think we can be nicer if we just work harder. Let's just work harder at being better. No, no, no. What we find here are people who were dead in their sin who are now alive in Christ and he's changed their affection. He's changed what they want. That's why you're not, you're not twisting their arm to get them to do these things or to be these people. It's just who they are. They're like, they're like little Cassia. They're just smiling ear to ear, just overwhelmed with the glory of God. And, and having seen him, this is the overflow. And I, I want to make sure that we see that before we go any further. If we want this, if we want these marks, we need that. We need to see Jesus afresh day after day, week after week, month after month. Every 10-year anniversary, we take stock of our hearts and we say, what are we looking to? Are we looking to anything but Jesus? Because if we are, this whole thing is going to fall flat. But if we lock our eyes on Jesus, the health will follow. The health will flow out of it. This church in Jerusalem was filled with genuine, genuine passionate, on fire for Jesus believers. Everything else flew out of it. A healthy church never, ever, 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 takes her eyes off of Jesus. A healthy church never, ever, ever, ever grows tired of the gospel. And a healthy church understands she can't do anything in her own strength. So Redeemer, we're going to respond in song in just a moment. But but my call to you today, if maybe you're looking back and you're feeling convicted on some of these areas, and that's good, maybe a very quick aside. I was talking to somebody the other week because guilt and shame, sometimes they're good. And I want to be careful how I say this, but the Holy Spirit, if he's working in us, brings conviction. So sometimes the Holy Spirit lets us feel some guilt and even some shame associated with it. But there's an unhealthy guilt and shame, and that's the work of the evil one. See, the, the evil one comes to steal and kill and destroy. And so sometimes we feel a guilt and a shame, and the voice in our head says, you're such a loser. Look, this is you're, you're the worst. How could God love someone like you? You should just quit now that's unhealth. That's not the work of the Spirit. But maybe you're here and the Holy Spirit is telling you He's just opening your eyes to see things and He's saying, we can do this. We can do this. You see this here? Let's make some changes. That's a good feeling. Pursue that. But just know this. Any change that's going to flow out of us from this sermon, from any sermon, from your Bible reading in the morning, any change that's going to flow out of us has to be empowered by the Spirit of God as we look to Christ. So let's resolve whatever our strategies might be for the years ahead. Let's resolve to look to Jesus. And to that end, I want to pray for us, and then we're going to sing together. God, I, I pray today that you would help us as your people to see you as we should. And Lord, we pray this prayer because we can't do it in our own strength. We can't even look to, to Jesus apart from your help. We're, we're, we're blinded by sin, and we need the help of your spirit to take off the blinders to wash it away, and to help us to see you as we ought. And so I pray for that today. I pray that for every single man or woman, boy and girl, who's here today. Lord, I think of the 55 kids who are being discipled right now by 15 volunteers. And it's, it's beautiful, Lord. And, and I think of all the people who are here right now worshiping you in this room. And it's, it's glorious, Lord. You've, you've done these amazing, great things in our midst. But Lord, I pray that you would help us just to lock onto you. Lord, in the years ahead, when we, when we find ourselves in the valleys, when things get hard, when it's tough, I pray that we would be a church whose eyes are locked on you. Lord, I pray against a spirit of discouragement. Lord, I, as I was preparing this morning, I just felt so convicted that, that I didn't want a tone of, of legalism, a tone of shame to be the, the undercurrent of this sermon. And even now, Lord, I just pray if it was, just wash that away. That's not what we want. What we want is is lives that are animated by the gospel. Lives that are abounding in gratitude from all that we've seen and heard and know. Lord, we want to be a people who are distinctively marked as set apart. We want to be holy for you are holy. And so God, we, we can't do that in our strength. And so I pray that you would help us now as we, see sin, as we see weakness, as we see areas where growth is needed. I pray that, Lord, we would see that, but then we lift our eyes and see Jesus, and that you would bring about the change in us as we strive to be more like him. And we pray all of that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?